You Can Run a Marathon on the Alley on the Run show is brought to you by Generation You Can. Welcome to the Alley on the Run show. I'm your host, Allie Feller. I've run six marathons, five of which went great. The other one, well, that one did not. But like any runner of any distance, I learned a little something along the way and a few big somethings from each race. Dare I say I even learned the most from the one where I was totally overtrained, totally in my head, and totally crossed the finish line a full half hour past my goal time. Yeah, good times. Now, I am not the person from whom to take running advice. After all, my motto is positive splits for positive people. But here's what I can do. I can ask a lot of really nosy questions from a lot of people who are qualified to give you great advice. So whether you're training for your first marathon, your fastest marathon, or your comeback from an illness or injury marathon, I want to make sure you get to that start line feeling confident and amazing. So that's what we're out to do here with the You Can Run a Marathon series. Today, we've reached the seventh and final episode in the series. Now that we've heard from the pros and the elites, let's hear from the people who can answer your questions. On this episode, Greg McMillan and Dr. Kathy Yeckel are on hand to answer a sampling of the hundreds of questions I received about all things marathon training. Yeah, you guys have a lot of questions. I love it. Greg McMillan is the man behind McMillan Running, where he's the founder and head coach. He's an exercise physiologist. He's a 231 marathoner. And Dr. Kathy Yeckel is a human metabolism research and an assistant clinical professor at the Yale School of Medicine. So we've got two brilliant minds on one great podcast. Let's go get your questions answered. Greg and Kathy, welcome to the final episode in the You Can Run a Marathon series on the Alley on the Run show. We have a lot of ground to cover. You are experts in your fields. You're here to teach people a lot of stuff. Welcome to the Alley on the Run show. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. It's wonderful to be here. All right. So before we get into the questions, which we have roughly 300 to get to today, so we're very busy people. We're really going to put you on the spot with your expertise. Let's talk about your expertise. Greg, we'll start with you. Can you just briefly tell everyone who you are and what makes you so qualified to be answering their questions today? Well, I come at the sport from three different angles. A runner myself, I was state champion in high school and then national champion when I turned 40 in the trail marathon. So I have some experience with performing well at the marathon distance. I also studied exercise science, so I have a graduate degree in exercise science, and then I've coached the full spectrum of runners from lots of new runners just getting started in the sport, age groupers, thousands and thousands of Boston qualifiers, national champions, world championship competitors, and even Olympians. So kind of those three things together, I try to use all of that knowledge to help any athlete that comes to me. So yeah, just a little bit qualified, I would say. Just a tiny bit of experience that you've got. All right, Kathy, tell everyone who you are and what makes you qualified to be here giving them lots of good advice today. (laughs) Well, thanks for having me. And I am not in the class of Greg McMillan here, uh, but I am somebody who has both the exercise physiology background, the exercise metabolism background. I've I've gotten to test 
do all the fancy breathing and, and exercise testing on everything from moderate runners all the way to elite runners and cyclists as well. So I, and all age groups. And I'm a runner myself. I've done, um, I've raced for many, many years, although not recently. I'd like to get back into it. So I'm somebody that looks at it from both the nutrition and the metabolism aspect. So hopefully I can fill in some of the, the various puzzle pieces as we go along for helping people understand the fueling of, of, of marathons. Well, and I will say that by far the most common question that came in from people, the one that I heard over and over and over is fueling. I don't understand fueling. I don't know where to start with fueling. So we're going to do our best. Is there anything that you both want people to know as you're answering these questions? Obviously they came in through Insta stories. We don't know everyone's background. We don't know their levels. We have one sentence that we're working with for most of these questions. Is there anything that you two need people to keep in mind as you're giving them the answers to their questions? Sort of a disclaimer, if you will. Well, I would say that every runner is different. And so we are going to try our best to provide an answer that is applicable to everyone. But certainly you have to take things and think about how does that apply to you, which could be different than your training partner. So we're going to do our best to try to provide a general answer as specific as we can, uh, thinking about the type of runner that you may be. And, and I, I agree completely with Greg. This is very nuanced. And I think in particularly with this audience, because many of you are likely to be um, women following Ali on the run here, is that, is that so much of the research has been done in men and not women. So a lot of times we're having to extra extrapolate from the research and we're having to sort of, you know, work with coaches, work with the, with the nutrition people to really figure out individually and, and your, you know, elite status or non-elite status, where you are in terms of your sort of in terms of the nutrition and fueling perspective. All right. Love that. I think we've got our bases covered. We've got our disclaimers. No one is going to sue us for saying, go do a 20 mile run tomorrow. I think we're good <laughs> with that. Greg, I'm throwing the first question your way. We have the first one for you. How long? And again, this one came up so often. How long should my longest run be? Is 20 miles really long enough for my longest training run? How many 20 mile runs should I do? There's a lot of chatter around this elusive 20 mile run. What's your take is, on that? It is a great question. I've fielded it for probably 20 years and it's been an evolving answer because the sport has evolved a lot. In fact, I have an article on my website that is called, what should your maximum long run be? And my feeling is that the longest long run to prepare for a marathon is related to your expected finish time. So that's why you hear pro runners, they'll do 20 mile runs every weekend. So they may have six or seven of those across their marathon training plan. But for them, a 20 mile run may only take two hours and 15 minutes, two hours and a half. So you have to think about it in that way as well. So I feel like it depends on what your expected finish time is. So if your expected finish time, you're kind of a fast runner, so maybe three hours or a little bit uh, faster than that, then you're probably going to run your marathon duration as your longest long run or maybe a little bit farther. So if your goal is, say, two hours and 30 minutes, you might run your longest long run of two hours and 30 minutes up to three hours. That would be a good preparation. Now, if you're more of the runner that's going to finish in four hours, that may not be long enough for you. So we have to say, okay, now we need to extend that long run to get closer to the duration. So usually that's someone 
who might run three and a half to four and a half hours as their longest long run. And then people who are going to finish in five or six hours, I find with those athletes that limiting the longest long run to about four and a half hours works best. Even though that's shorter than their marathon, how long it will take them to complete the marathon, you have to also think about how that long run is going, the fatigue from it is going to bleed into your upcoming training and raise your injury risk. So there's no one answer, which is why there seems to be all this confusing information about the long run for the marathon. In that article on my website, that's why I break it down based on what is your expected finish time. And from that, I can provide more uh, better guidelines, if you will, as to what the longest long run should be. So I'm sorry there's not a specific answer. It really just depends on the runner. But uh, by understanding that even though the distance is the same, 26.2 miles, the event is really different runner to runner. Somebody trying to run two hours for that distance versus somebody preparing to run uh, their best for four hours, those are two kind of different events and need to be prepared for slightly differently. Oh yeah. That's always the humbling thing is when I'm, you know, two hours into my race, realizing I'm only halfway there, then realizing that the lead men are done. That's always a a really humbling thought to have, but that's really great advice. That's why you're preparing for a different event. Ultimately, you're preparing to run your best for four hours and they're preparing to run their best for two hours. So naturally the long run might change slightly for those athletes. I wouldn't mind adding something here because Greg has never steered me wrong in terms of these types of this type of thinking, particularly in terms of time versus mileage, because it is good to think about, well, how long is it going to really take you? And can your body hold up to that? So that's another way to look at it, particularly for more novice beginning runners is, is can you, you know, can you, can you, can you mentally and physically handle that kind of timing, even though it will be different in the actual race? I love that. All right, Kathy, another very popular question we had was along the lines of, I'm very much a beginner. How do I start fueling on long runs? I don't even know where to start. Please, all caps, help. (laughs) Okay, this is, yeah, this is another one that's quite challenging because of course, so much of how you enter into your long runs have to do with your nutrition leading up to your long runs. So what was your work day like the day before? And did you fuel, you know, did you eat properly the day before and the night before? So, so I think part of it is that, you know, you have to take it seriously. You have to, you have to think about it from the standpoint of, okay, I'm going to be out there for, for, you know, two, three hours or whatever. And so you have to think about, you know, the preparation. And so one of the things is the day before you have to think. And and part of this depends on dietary preference in terms of what you individually have been doing and finding that works well for you. Um, for, for many women, you know, a mixed diet is, is a good thing. So, and to really pay attention to the nutritional quality of the diet, not just the macronutrients in that diet. So not just the energy. Um, the, the, and during the run, you know, part of it is for, for, for women, we, we, we know that, we, that women burn fat better 
um, you know, in terms of these kinds of distance runs, even than men. So, and, and can go up to higher intensities. So really you're trying to keep your blood sugar stable. You're trying to keep everything so that the, the, all the training adaptations that you've been working toward can, can work effectively during that long run. So you, you, part of it really is a trial and error for each individual, but I would say going into it with the idea that you've, if you're, if you really need, if you're going to do the long run in the morning and you need to eat before it, make sure you have enough time. You know, the, the, the generation you can products, the super starch in that works really well because you can, you can take it sooner to when you start to run and it keeps your blood sugar steady. But basically anything that you have, you have to decide, give it enough time before you run, but also think about the night before and make sure that you're basically topped up with your carbohydrate, your proteins, your fats, everything is, is good quality at that point. I think when we talk about uh, fueling on the run, so many people are so used to thinking that their options are gels, right? For so long, that's what everyone talked about. Well, if you're doing a long run or you're running a marathon, you fuel with gels. It's almost one of those things like, you know, we call a Kleenex, we call a tissue a Kleenex, we call fueling gels. And that's not necessarily the case. There are so many options. Do you have any recommendations for helping people navigate what's out there, what might work for them and kind of what they have to choose from? It can be really overwhelming, I think, for beginners especially. I find that, that gels and things can, can really be um, hard on you. They can be hard on your stomach. They can be hard. So, so I think it's part of this is individual preference and getting used to things. Um, the idea that you should get your stomach used to it if you're, if, if, if you find that it works really well for you. Um, but I'm, I'm more somebody that, that goes into it thinking you've done your training, you have good glycogen levels in your muscle and in your liver because you've taken in the right amounts of food carbohydrate and that during the, the actual um, run and long run that you're, you're really just trying to keep stability. And I think that's really true for women because there hasn't been a lot to suggest that we benefit from pounding our bodies with lots of simple carbohydrates. So I guess I, I, I might be a bit counter, um, but I, I think that there are lots of products and you're, you know, you're welcome to try. Never go into a race and try something for the first time. You should definitely try things on your long run. Greg probably has more experience with, with what has worked with some of his different levels of athletes. Um, but, but the science behind it is, is such that, you know, for women, it looks like stability reigns supreme above having lots and lots and lots of intake when it, it basically prevents you from using your secret weapon, which is the fat burning potential. And what about, this was another common question, is the idea of how do I know how much nutrition I need during the race? Is it, okay, I'm starting to feel a little depleted. I should, you know, take a a swig of my UCAN, a gel or whatever it is, or you really want to beat getting to that point. Is there something, some advice you can give that helps people know how to time their fueling during the race? So you have to realize that you don't just take something in and it instantly appears. It can, it can take quite a bit of time. So you really do have to sort of 
plan ahead. If you're somebody that's going to practice taking in different types of carbohydrates, so that the, the anything that's done where it's the simple carbohydrates, you, you really do have to take small amounts frequently because you don't want your blood sugar to go, you know, all over the place. So it's more of a planned event, something that the super starch is wonderful because you can kind of take it before you go and then you don't have to think about it for quite a while into the run and then you might want to top up a little bit more as time goes on. Um, a great study was just done showing that, you know, just 50 grams and three hours later at just sort of this moderate intensity, there was still plenty there and their blood sugar was very stable. So it was, it's, it shows you that, that, you know, stability is a good thing and that it can work for you. So, but I would say that I think if you're already feeling lousy, it's you, in some ways you've waited too long. So you need to really practice and, and plan how you're going to take it. And most people, that means a little bit at a time if it's simple carbohydrate. But if you can, if you can um, do something that's more of a complex carbohydrate like the super starch and you can, then you can you can make it so that you're not constantly having to give your belly um, more um, fuel and, and allow it to just sort of slowly come out on its own, which is very nice for a lot of people. And that's been the real evolution, I feel like, in marathon fueling. The original marathon fueling was really for those really fast runners and that were finishing in between two and two and a half hours, maybe up to three hours. And their gut could tolerate having these fast acting carbohydrates like gels and sports drinks for over that duration. But what a lot of us who run slower than that find is that boy, our gut just cannot handle that much those fast acting or simple sugars uh, through gels and sports drinks over three and a half, four and a half, five hours, the GI system just cries uncle and says, I can't take this anymore. So the, the new kind of process is what Kathy's talking about, which is where you try to use more uh, slow acting carbohydrate, particularly through the first half to two thirds of the race, something like a generation you can, or people use regular food. You hear people, applesauce, baby food, figs, the dates, there's all kinds of things that people are using that are, are more, they're, create a more stable blood sugar response. You don't have the spike in the crash that you would get from a simple sugar. And then they save those gels and the sports drinks for the last uh, hour to hour and a half of the race. And then their GI system is happy and they can absorb that fast acting carbohydrate just when you are tired. So I feel like the new strategy that is really coming to light now is using the slow acting carbohydrates for the bulk of the, the performance and then adding that sort of fast acting to it over the last 45 minutes, hour, potentially an hour and a half. That seems to limit the GI distress that runners have had a lot of times in marathons and they keep fueling properly. So they have the energy at the end instead of stomach gets upset, you stop fueling, you're getting tired you hit the wall and you're really slow at the end. So it's really kind of an exciting time for runners to experiment with not just, you know, sports drinks and gels in the method that was really created for fast runners, but do more of, okay, I want to do a slow acting carbohydrate, something steady like a generation you can or some of the food products 
and then add the gels and the sports drinks in the last part of those runs and my races. That seems to be a really great strategy. Love that. All right, Greg, first marathon, people want to know, how do I choose a time goal? It's my first marathon or should my focus just be on finishing? Well, if it's your first marathon, you have to focus on finishing because you don't know, you haven't experienced what it's like to be that tired and have to keep going. <laughs> That's one of the challenges in marathon training is that we don't usually cover the marathon distance in training. We don't do it at race pace. So the first one, there's a lot of discovery. You have to experience it to kind of know what it feels like. And so I encourage athletes, if it's their first one, go off of your training, look at sort of what, what kind of pace can you maintain in your long runs? And let's use that as the starting point for the race, get deep into the race, maybe 20 miles into it. And if you feel great at that point, pick it up all the way to the finish. It's much better to finish the race feeling like, boy, I've left a lot in the tank. I can go to my next marathon and really perform. That's a much better experience than going too fast, focusing on time, putting too much pressure on yourself, getting late in the race where you do get very, very fatigued and you experience a lot of sort of mental suffering and, and failing and not feeling good crossing that finish line. You want to feel great crossing that finish line the first time feel that sense of accomplishment and leave the race going, I can't wait to do my next one. So <laughs> I'm pretty conservative on the pacing for new marathoners. I do think the focus has to be conservative uh, pacing, particularly early in the race, because you've got to save that energy for later because it's a different feeling. I think you can race as many 5Ks, 10Ks and half marathons as you like, but that suffering that's at the end of the marathon is a totally different experience. So you better be careful early in the race so you have a lot of mental energy and physical energy for late in the race. So can you talk about what that should actually feel like? Because I know that I've had coaches tell me like the first 10 miles should feel easy. I mean, should you feel like you're walking? Should you let everyone pass you? Do you have any tips for a actually keeping it slower in the first half and what in terms of your body and checking in, what should that feel like? Either your breathing, your legs, what should people expect or strive for? Yeah, it's a great question. I think it's a really good way to approach the marathon is to think about how should I feel connect with your effort because that really can guide you quite well in the marathon. So the early part of the race, at least through halfway and preferably through about 16 miles, should feel very similar to your long runs. It shouldn't be hard. Your breathing should be very under control. You shouldn't feel like it's fast. It should feel like a long run. So you can look around, you can talk to people, you can take in the sights along the way. That's the way it should feel. It should not feel like a 5K where you're racing. It should not feel like a 10K where you really have to get out strong and establish your pace. It should feel much like a long run through at least halfway, preferably 16 miles. And then at around that point, you have to begin to engage mentally a little bit more. So in the beginning, you can kind of look around and you don't have to focus that much on, on how you're doing. You just sort of run. But then later, you have to begin to raise your intensity just to hold the pace. And that's usually between mile 16 to about mile 21, 22 in the race. So you can't just 
think about it like a long run during those periods because you are getting starting to get tired. So I find people do have to raise their level of focus on their running during that sort of 15 to 20 mile mark. You're still not racing. You're still not like pushing, but you just have to raise your level of attention to what you're doing. Otherwise you can begin to slow during that period. And then after mile 20, hopefully after mile 20, preferably around mile 22, that's where you have to bring your superpowers together. That's where you have to bring your A game. That's where you have to raise your intensity significantly just to hold the pace. So normally in running, if you raise your intensity significantly, your pace will increase. But at the end of a marathon, raising your intensity that much is just to hold the pace. That's something different for new marathoners. They have to realize, I have to really focus. I have to really bring my A game mentally just to hold the pace. And that's what you do at the end of the marathon. And if you watch these guys on TV, even the pros, the ones toward the end, you can see that they are really focusing just to keep going. It's the same for the rest of us. So I always tell athletes the first half to 16 miles is really the sort of feels like a long run. But then you raise your level of attentiveness so that you're kind of not slowing down. It takes you a little bit more effort to keep the pace going and then get ready to bring your A game. Get excited to challenge yourself over the last four, five, six miles of the marathon because it's really easy to have pity parties during that time. It's really easy to slow down. It's really easy to have a lot of negative thoughts coming your way. So you've got to combat that with a really high excitement and ready to challenge yourself. Even though you're tired, just keep going, keep going, keep going. If you have that mentality across the race, you can get through the tough part, the finishing part, and then you'll really feel proud of yourself when you cross that line. And then you'll sign up for that second one. I love it. No doubt. (laughs) What do you consider to be, if there is one, what do you consider to be the staple marathon workout? Well, if you're, if you're a new runner, it's the long run. It's certainly conditioning the body, the mind, the legs, the gut, the nutrition system, all of that, you're conditioning that through the long runs to be able to cover the distance. So the long run certainly is the cornerstone of marathon training. Now, once you get more experienced in your second, third, fourth, 10th marathon, then the fast finish long run becomes the most important marathon type workout. And that's where you're pushing the pace toward the end of the run. Those are very challenging runs, but again, they give you exposure to that level of mental suffering that you have toward the end of the race. They give you practice at running goal pace. They give you practice at fueling. Those become the more important. So it kind of depends on the uh, experience level of the runner. Certainly for the new marathoner, the long run, everything in your life should revolve around getting in a really high quality long run, a successful long run. And then more experienced runners, it shifts to, I've got, the, I've got the long run covered. Now I need to practice this fast finish long run idea. Love that. All right, Kathy, lots of people want to know, how, do you have any tips for mastering drinking on the run? I have this one person wrote, I really struggle at water stops. Do you have any tips? I don't want to come to a total stop, but I also don't want to miss my mouth. 
Yeah, I, I think one of the, the, you know, luckily the, the, the elites have the advantage, they often have the water bottles, which of course most of us are more used to using when we're trying to drink instead of the cups. But I think one of the things that I know I've found over time is that you, you squeeze the cup and you don't try to drink it right away because you'll suck back too much air. So you almost run with it for a few steps and then slowly start to sip on it. And don't, don't try to like throw it all back in two seconds while you're at the table. It's, it automatically tends to slow you down and allow you to slow you down in terms of your, your, your anxiety to get the water um, or the electrolyte drink. So, so it's more, I think it's more a, it's a patience game. So a lot of it is to, is to just calm yourself and, and pick up a glass or whatever, run some few steps and just sort of then start to sip on it. Um, because it is a practice, it, it's definitely a practice, practice um, <laughs> skill, <laughs> but that's what I've found over time. Yeah, we always talk about sip and carry, sip and carry, sip and carry, instead of grab and gulp, grab and yep. gulp. So always trying to just grab, and both hands should be full. So as you're going through aid stations, you're grabbing with both hands and crimping the top of those cups. And and like Kathy said, you're not just slamming. It's not a shot. <laughs> you should be drinking. So, you know, take your time. You want to be discarding those uh, cups later after the aid station, not just immediate. Uh, and the best thing, you know, I think a lot of athletes are starting to carry their own fluids, at least to get them through the first part of the race, which is where the aid stations are the most crowded. So you can consider, and there's lots of great, options for carrying your own fluids these days. And the summer, you know, summer is, is basically over, but it doesn't mean that you can't, you know, some people travel to warmer marathons and it's really important to realize that getting electrolyte, getting the, the water, you know, staying hydrated is more of a planned event and that you should, particularly in a marathon, you kind of have to start early because by the time you're thirsty, you, you're, you're kind of too late. So this, the idea that you should pretty much grab every time is, is, is a good one because you really aren't drinking that much quantity. It's just, it's hard to do, right? So the, the little sips, the not getting, not swallowing too much air, which can really throw off your GI system as well, is really important. So, so to, to sort of have that planned, um, like, okay, I'm not thirsty yet, but I should drink a little bit. And it gets, it gets you used to also doing it, um, physically sort of um, doing that, <laughs> that little exercise. All right, Greg, I'd love tips for running a faster second marathon. Oh, that's the fun one. You know, you, once you prove you can do it, then uh, getting faster. I say there's really three things that can go into that. If you feel like you've got your nutrition dialed in for sure. The first is the fast finish long run. So these are long runs that are slightly shorter than your regular long run. So say your regular long run is 18 miles. A fast finish long run might be 14 to 16 miles. You run two or three miles at your regular sort of long run pace and then you progress to at least your marathon goal pace and hold that and then the last one two three miles you run as fast as you can it's a fast finish long run you empty the tank those are great for boosting your fitness for the marathon the second component i usually work on is just uh can we have uh more consistent mileage across 
the marathon cycle. So when you're doing your first marathon, you're usually building up in mileage across the marathon cycle. But the second time, you might be able to maintain a higher mileage earlier in the marathon cycle. The way I usually do it is do two or three weeks up, meaning at your sort of higher uh, weekly mileage, and then a week down. Taking a down week allows the body and the mind to sort of refresh. It keeps injuries at bay, and it gets you more excited for that next up period. So a little bit higher uh, weekly mileage in your second marathon training uh plan is really good. And then the third thing is that the long runs are longer across uh, earlier in the plan. So usually with your first marathon training plan, you know, you start at a low level and you kind of sequentially increase your long run across the training cycle. In your second one, those earlier long runs can be a little bit longer. Presumably you've continued to run and you have a good base and you're, instead of starting from scratch, you're starting at, well, I can go out and run 10 miles and that doesn't take so much out of me anymore. So your long runs earlier in the plan can start a little bit um, fat or longer. And then the third thing is get faster at shorter distances. Work on your 5K, your 10K, and your half marathon performances. Those will give you another component of fitness that will carry over into your marathon training. So those four things, in addition to having great nutrition, are a great way to uh, run a lot faster in your second marathon, particularly because now you know what to expect. Can you talk about pacing when it comes to long runs? Listen, people don't believe anyone when they say, slow down, you don't need to do all your long runs at your marathon goal pace. Can you talk a little bit about that? Do you recommend runners other than, of course, the fast finish runs that you were talking about in general, how much slower do you suggest the long run and recovery runs be than goal pace? It depends on the runner. So for the fast runners, people that are running, say, three hours, three and a half hours or faster for their marathon, most of their long runs are significantly slower than their marathon goal pace. And this is where that rule of thumb came from, from the 1970s, which was, hey, you should run, your long run should be a minute and a half to two and a half minutes slower than your marathon goal pace. And so that's what you see with a lot of the really fast runners. They are slow, they're running quite a bit slower than their marathon goal pace. Somewhere around four and a half to five hours uh, marathon time, that the, the long run pace and the goal pace get closer together. But again, it's not about pushing the pace. It's just the nature that that's kind of how the physiology works. And for some runners that are, you know, five or six hour marathoners, often their long run pace is at or slightly faster than their marathon goal pace. So it kind of depends on the runner, but the point of regular long runs where you're just building up your endurance is that the goal is not to fatigue yourself uh, breathing wise. It should not be a heavy breathing workout. You are trying to fatigue your muscles and your mind. So you're trying to get your legs tired because that will stimulate them to grow stronger. And you're trying to mentally have to challenge yourself to keep going. If you are breathing heavy during those runs, 
that's too fast. That's using a different system than we want. It should be conversational pace. We usually, that's why we love the long run because we go and we talk about everything in our lives for two or three or four hours while we're out on the long run. So the point is it should be conversational. It should be, it should feel easy except at the end where it gets difficult. But again, not from a breathing standpoint, but more from my legs are tired and my mind wishes this run was over. <laughs> I love that. Time for a break to hear from our sponsor, Generation You Can. For the past seven weeks on this series, I've talked about why Generation You Can just might be the thing you need in your running life. Alexi Pappas told you why she fuels with Generation You Can. Shireen Jame, Meb Kaflesky, Molly Bookmeyer, they've all chimed in to share why they only want the best for their bodies and why You Can is their fuel of choice. Now, you don't have to be a multiple marathon winner and Olympian to use You Can. You don't even have to be a marathon runner to use it. Heck, my longest run in the past three months was six miles, and I'm here chowing down on the chocolate peanut butter energy bar like I have a 20 miler in the morning, which I don't. All this to say, Generation You Can is used by athletes of all levels because it really works. I like the bars because they're yummy and make for a quick, easy to grab on the go snack. And you know me, I love anything chocolate. And runners like Meb love the energy powders to keep running strong in order to cross that finish line in first place. Now, you know I won't recommend or stand behind a product or brand I don't truly love and believe in. So do me a favor, give it a try. No one nutrition plan works the same for every single runner, but I can tell you that the super starch used in Generation You Can is wonderfully endorsed by this sensitive stomached Crohn's diseased runner. If you also have a sensitive stomach and sugary gels just don't sit well, give You Can a try. Go to generationyoucan.com and use code on the run to get 20% off your order plus free shipping. If you're new to You Can, check out the You Can Run starter pack. For that one, go to generationyoucan.com slash on the run 50 for 50% off starter packs and yeah, more free shipping. That's generationyoucan.com slash on the run 50. Now let's get back to the Q&A with Greg and Kathy. We had a runner write in asking, I'm training for my first 26.2. How do my fueling needs differ from running 13.1? I know I need more food. Anything else to consider? Yeah, they're different events. I mean, part of it depends on how, um, you, you know, how many of these kinds of half marathons somebody has been running and then can they transition to the marathon pretty easily because they are just both distance events. Um, the, the idea that you, you, again, the idea that you really have to be planned because the, the, that longer run is, is definitely going to take more, um, more of your stores. But, but then again, when, when Greg is talking about the fact that that longer run in the training is conversational, that also means, and that your breathing is, is better regulated, that you're able to talk, that means you're below that ventilatory threshold, that term that, that, that tells you that you're sort of that lactate is, is staying low so that you're not, you're still working on really being able to use your fat potential. And that part is being ad adapted as well as all of your uh, muscle um, strength and these kinds of things. So it's really about 
prepping so that you have all the glycogen stores there so that you've had enough carbohydrate just to make sure that you're, you're topped up and ready to go, but that you should be able to really do those those runs and the, and the training runs with, to be able to really stress and be able to maximize your, your use of fat um, to burn as a fuel. So it's, it's, again, it's about keeping your, your blood sugar stable. It's about, it's about stability and allowing the muscle to really figure out how to best change over from sort of that half marathon distance to the marathon distance. And a lot of that really just comes down to those long runs. So if they're conversational, if you, if you can get the pace correct and, and start to build on the strength at that pace with those, um, you know, if it's, if it's your first time, but if the person's already been doing the half marathons, chances are they have a, a more, they're more accustomed to doing longer runs. So they have more ability to, to mentally get it out and to, to, and to play with things like the, the faster ending speed um, for, for the longer sessions. All right. This is a question for both of you, because I think you'll have two very different answers. Maybe what is the most important part of marathon training that isn't talked about? I think uh, mental suffering. I think we don't accept that if you're going to challenge yourself with running a marathon, that it is necessarily going to be tough. And we try to do all these things to, make it easier in training and on ourselves when actually you should be trying to uh, put yourself in situations where you gradually get more and more used to suffering. And that's what I say with athletes. Hey, you, you, you didn't feel good on that run, but you kept going. That's huge development. And they'll say, well, my, my paces were slow. But think about the mental development that you got out of that. You kept going. That's going to serve you really well. So I think we like to talk about the X's and O's of, of training and workouts and that sort of thing. But for most of us, our performances all are between the years. It's all about you versus you uh, in, in events and certainly in training as well. So I feel like, you know, I talk about suffering all the time and it's like, but that's part of it. That's that's what you're going for. That's what you have to deal with. And the better that you can deal with that and have an expectation for it, I think you, you handle it much better. We know from neuroscience that if you expect something to be easy and it's hard, your brain really freaks out. But if you expect something to be very hard and it's hard, then the brain says, well, this is exactly what I expected. And so it, it will allow you to keep pushing. You have less likely you're less, it's less likely you'll have a pity party. So I do a lot of the psychological stuff in addition to just the, the training that you have to do because I think that really helps an athlete perform their best. Absolutely. And Kathy, do you have anything to add to that? What you think is the most important part of training that people aren't talking about? No, I, I actually, I totally agree with Greg. I think so much of the marathon training is mental and figuring out how to deal with those times when it gets really, really hard um, to put one foot in front of the other and, and you're just having a bad day or, or and, and then trying to think about, you know, trying to put yourself into the place where it's like, okay, wait a minute. I know that I've done this when it, it has felt like a breeze. And <laughs> so, no, but I, I really do think so much of it is mental. Uh, I think the one thing, the other thing that's not talked about when it comes to marathon training is that, 
you don't have to do a marathon your second time out. You, you, there are lots of race distances in between. And I, I sort of feel like we've done a disservice to running in general sometimes when people feel like they go from a 5K to a marathon and that there's nothing in between. And, and there's a lot to be gained from doing a half marathon, from, for training for even a 10K and getting faster and working toward a marathon so that, that it really is an accomplishment at the end. Because it's always an accomplishment when you do one. But I sometimes think we give short shrift <laughs> to the, to the le lesser distances and it, they aren't lesser distances and they can really add to marathon training. Oh, I am so with you. I am like team 5K, team half marathon for life. I'm all about it. All right. This is a question for both of you as well, because I think that this brings into account both the nutritional part of things and the physical. This person asked, I'm always afraid of bonking. How do I figure out how hard to run for the best results? Well, I think one of the things that you can do is uh, purposely go out and find your bonk point. Just go out on a run and don't fuel and see how long you can run before you bonk. Then you know, okay, this is how long it takes if I don't fuel and at this pace where my bonk point is. And then you can adjust your effort to begin to extend that over time. So typically if you just follow the rules, the talk test of keeping it conversational and being properly hydrated and doing all the prep that you should for your runs, you should be fine. But if you're very concerned about bonking and um, maybe you've done it in the past, then I say, you know, figure that bonk point out. Figure out when you're going to bonk and then you will know so you won't be worried about it. And then you can take steps to adjust your intensity or your nutrition to be able to then avoid it uh, in your runs. If you're talking about in the race, then you've got to practice nutrition in your training so that you know it won't happen on race day. That's why we practice all these long runs and all these test efforts and dress rehearsals are so that you know you won't bonk in the race. You shouldn't bonk in the race. You shouldn't, that shouldn't happen anymore. We know enough about how to fuel. So it's really about dialing in your fueling. Then you know exactly what to do in the race and then you won't have that fear. I think I want to host a group run called the bonk run, like the great bonk point. Yeah. 2019. Yeah. And it'll be like Survivor, like who runs and just see where different people drop off and bonk. And at the end, we'll just be like a pile of tired bodies ordering Uber Eats or something. But you'll have an amazing adaptation from it. Yeah. Your body will say, man, that was unpleasant. <laughs> so I need to adjust. It will store a lot more carbohydrate for the future. It'll say, I'm going to be ready for that. And mentally, you'll be like, wow, that really, that was really challenging. Your brain will be more used to it. So again, you know, as I've mentioned before, it's not bad to get tired on long runs. It's not bad to bonk in training. It's not bad to have those experiences because we learn from those. And then we can take that information and adjust going forward. But there's no doubt that, you know, going out and and run and challenging yourself to just sort of run until you're significantly fatigued. That's not a bad strategy. You don't do it all the time, obviously, but if you have the concerns that you mentioned, then yeah, find out your bonk point. That's not a bad strategy. All right. The great bonk coming soon to a group <laughs> run near you. <laughs> it's unpleasant for sure, but it's not a bad strategy. 
I love it. Um, Okay. I'm going to present this next question without any context and either one of you can answer it. The question is simply, what do I do if I have to pee? From my standpoint, uh, you try to hold it as long as you can. But if it does become uncomfortable or you begin to have cramping or some issues like that, you have to find a porta john and go to the bathroom. Uh, you'll feel much better and you'll run a lot faster if you relieve yourself of that. Now, there's several strategies to try to avoid it. Obviously, trying to go to the bathroom as much as you can before the start of the race can help you in that situation. But for me, and personally, I mean, you know, I've run a bunch of marathons. Uh, you just try to hold it if you can. And then if it gets too bad, you just have to pull over and take that time and go to the bathroom because you'll feel so much better and you'll run a lot faster. I agree. I mean, you just, if it happens, you just have to, you have to deal with it, but you do feel much better afterwards. So, and you, and it's like, oh, okay, I've got that out of my way. So I'm going to, I'm ready to run now. <laughs> All right. This next question is a good one because I think it's something I can relate to. This person asked, is it possible I'm just not built for speed and the 358 marathon might just be my lifetime best? And I should say that when this person says speed, it's all relative to many people. A 358 marathon is very fast to others. It's mid pack, whatever that, you know, we remove judgment from that here, but this person wants to know, is there a chance that 358 is as good as it gets for them? Yeah, it certainly can be. We all have our limitations. And uh, if you have done really good training and everything has gone well and you've had an excellent race, the day was good and you've done that multiple times, then yeah, you might be getting close to uh, what you can do based on what you can race based on the training that you have. Now, you can always change something up in training. You could always go and say, I'm going to try to get faster at 5K and 10K and a half marathon. You know, I have a calculator on my website. So you can put in, okay, what is the predicted time? You can say, I want to run 350 for the marathon what do I have to hit for the half marathon? You work on, okay, try to get your half marathon down to that. Sometimes that can then trigger a faster marathon or you can train differently. You can train more. You can add more fast finish long runs. You could change your diet. There's all kinds of things you could change to see if you can trigger that. But certainly we all have a limitation in our performance. Every runner, even the world record holder would love to run a little bit faster. So we all still have that uh, drive that we want to get faster, but certainly we have limitations based on the training that we can do and tolerate as well as uh, our genetics. What advice do you both have for getting motivated for long runs? You know, to me, it's one, it's, it's like you, you, you sort of start the day before and you're not anxious, not being anxious about it, but being, being, get get excited about it. You know, it's, it's a time to really practice, you know, gather people that you want to run with. Um, it, it's, I think it's some, it's a time to also celebrate because you're not trying to be speedy Gonzalez that day. You're just trying to really work on, on bettering yourself so it can be fun the conversation can be fun so don't dread it I guess I I motive you know put on the tunes that you want you know just I would just say 
reverse the psychology a little bit and, and think about it in a more positive light um, instead of trying to dread it at all. Yeah, I feel like buddying up is a really good idea. Get a group, get somebody else, get your kids to ride their bike with you. Anything like that can be very helpful in getting out the door. Um, and fear can be helpful too sometimes. So if you have the marathon coming up, I know my wife uses fear a lot in her training where she's like, oh, I got I to gotta do this long run because the, the race is going to be tough. Um, but hopefully over time, the long runs – become your most cherished time when you're running because usually you're doing it with other people it's a lot of time that you get to spend and uh, like I said talk through things and, and enjoy so I, I feel like having other people to meet up with is a great strategy for staying motivated for the long run. Kathy what is the ideal post-marathon meal? One with fat, protein, carbs, all the nutritional components, but that is also really delicious. <laughs> I, I think everybody is going to be different on that. You know, it's one of those things that post-marathon, I, I think, would be your absolute reward. For me, it's like the... Um, because it's morning and oftentimes I've done it where it's been really cold. It's like, I want a cup of coffee. I want like pancakes. I want, you know, I'm, I'm more into the like comfort food at that point. Um, but I've, I, most of the times that I've done them, it's been just freezing out. So it's like anything that's warm that I could put in me, I, I will cherish and anything tastes good at that point. So it is, you know, you, you, you want to start to recover though. So it is good to have a meal that, that is, it, that's very mixed and that has enough of, of good quality ingredients in it. But I think you can give yourself a little bit of a break too and just and, and enjoy the, the first little bit of time. Um, it always helps, you know, rule of thumb in terms of getting glycogen sort of back restored that, that your glycogen rest restoring potential is, is much faster early on. So those first few hours, um, protein is good right away because you, you can start to build back up your muscle um, that's been breaking down so that, that it starts to have higher protein synthesis. So you can, you know, there are things obviously that you would love to have put into that. Um, but there's a trade-off, of course, because it marathon recovery is going to take several days, obviously. So um, to start the process on a good foot, you know, you, you do want good quality um, food. Greg, do you have any advice for people about finding the right training plan? Yes. So the first rule of picking the right training plan is it should have some wiggle room in it. So most people look at a training plan and they think this is my ideal situation, right? I, this is the I can, this training looks great and um, it would be awesome to do, but it re would require that your life goes perfect and none of our lives go perfect. So what I find is people often don't build in enough wiggle room when they select the plan. So you need to have a plan that you can accomplish even if life gets in the way, even if your kid gets sick or work gets crazy or you have to skip a run, you're still going to accomplish the goals of the training and then it should have flexibility so that yeah if you have one of those perfect weeks where everything you that you sit down early in the week and say this is what I want to accomplish it all goes smoothly you can train a little bit more so I find most people choose training plans that are a little bit too aggressive that 
they can work if everything goes perfect in their life, but most of the time it doesn't. So you need a plan that you can accomplish even if things aren't going well. And the reason for that is that we beat ourselves up mentally a lot when we don't accomplish what's on the paper, right? So if you have a plan and you, you miss some runs or things get interrupted because of life, we begin to doubt ourselves. So I say, don't choose a plan that would require everything in your life to be perfect in order to accomplish it. Make sure it's something that, you, that looks doable, even on kind of weeks where some things get in the way. That's a really great strategy for selecting kind of the volume or the amount of running that you would be doing. And then the next thing I feel is really important is that the plan should have flexibility. You should feel empowered to modify the plan based on how you're feeling and how your life schedule is going. Like on all my plans and the system that I have, you can drag and drop workouts easily around during the week because we all have to do that where something comes up and you need to move this workout. You should have that flexibility and you should feel empowered to change. You should always have a range of volume and pace for every run. In other words, I don't like plans that say go run seven miles because what if you feel really bad that day? Seven miles would be overtraining for you. You should maybe do six miles. What if you feel great that day? Well, maybe eight miles. Take advantage of feeling good for that day. So I like plans that have flexibility. All my plans have flexibility. It'll say, you know, here's a minimum for the day and a maximum for the day, and you adjust based on how you're feeling. The same goes with the pace range. Have a range so that on those days where you feel great, run toward the fast end of the pace range. If you don't feel good, slow down. That's your body telling you, I need to slow down. That way, every single run is optimized for you based on how you're feeling. Think about that. Instead of overtraining and getting injured, every single run would be optimized because your body would be telling you, hey, today you need to run a little bit slower or hey, you need to go a little bit shorter. That's what coaches do when we're talking to athletes. We're always saying, how are you feeling? Oh, you're really tired? Well, let's go a little shorter today. The training plan should be set up so it has that flexibility in it and you should feel empowered to make adjustments so on the fly based on how you're feeling. When athletes do that, they have a much higher success rate at accomplishing their goals. And it's a lot more fun because you remove a lot of those bad workouts and you feel better all the time. You never kind of get over fatigued across the training plan. Great advice. I love that. All right. We just have a couple to wrap this, this up here. Taper. We need to talk about the taper because people will be heading into it soonish. What tips do the two of you have for surviving the taper? How long should it be? How should I feel during taper? And why do people hate the taper so much? The taper is important because of all the training that you've done. The goal with the taper, I actually call it the peaking phase, which I think uh, helps people kind of get their mindset about what they're doing, is to allow all of that fitness to be to come together in your body and your mind. All those little aches and pains to heal up. All the energy systems, be all your energy stores fully stocked. Your mind rested and excited for the race. The purpose of that period, which should last two to three weeks of a sort of descending, a tapering down of your volume toward the race, 
is been shown to help improve your performance. You have a better performance ability when you taper down in that way. Now, it doesn't mean take a break. I had one athlete I was coaching and she was really ready for her marathon and then she ran so poorly. And I was like, what happened? What was going on? And she said, I don't know, but I really rested for it. I took five days off before the race. I was like, why did you do that? You took your body out of its rhythm. So I say reduce the volume, but try to maintain your frequency, the number of days per week that you run, because our body does like a routine. And that's one of the things that happens when you change from I'm doing this big volume to suddenly I'm doing less volume. Sometimes you feel a little sluggish. Sometimes your mind gets a little bit grumpy because you're, you're used to having all this training um, focus and now it seems lighter to you. So you do sometimes have to battle that feeling of not feeling as good, sometimes sluggish in runs, which can create a lot of doubt just when you're anxious about the race coming up. So you do need to have a good mental strategy to understand I'm resting. This is I'm reducing my training load. My body's getting stronger. My mind may be uh, some of these runs may not feel great, but that's part of the taper. That's okay. And I need to constantly be thinking about positive thoughts as a lot of the anxiety starts to come in uh, as the race approaches. So it's an important component to do this peaking or tapering phase, but it can be a, a mental challenge for a lot of people. But in general, it's just a gradual reduction. Usually you do about 25% per week reduction from the previous week and that leads people into the race uh, feeling very they should feel fresh and excited but sometimes during the middle of that taper they can feel a little flat all right and, and it's good to one other comment with that sometimes it's good for people to realize that there's a real reason why you also start to feel sluggish and part of that is is because you are starting to build back up those muscle glycogen stores that you've been sort of depleting with all this uh, extra long runs and everything else and those pull in water so part of the sluggishness is actually is going to help you during the marathon so you just have to kind of put that put that in your head so that you realize that that it re it's very real because in part you're storing up a little bit more water as you store that glycogen and so the sluggishness is going to benefit you once you start racing because that water will come off and and help you stay hydrated that kind of thing so it's it's uh and i also find with the taper that you you have to figure out what what's you know from an individual standpoint is it the sort of the day before you you even be more relaxed and take more off or like two days before so i'm somebody that i like to do more the day before the race and maybe two days before i kind of really take more time volume off um so that's really individual and it's good to figure out how your body likes to to respond in terms of really reducing the volume and being fresh for that race all right the last thing that i need i have one last question for each of you kathy what is your all-time best piece of advice for marathon runners to keep in mind regarding fueling their bodies just sum up everything you know in one sentence no big deal <laughs> <laughs> allow your training to work for you so don't start running too fast and blow a lot of your glycogen stores early so it's that new concept of thinking planning ahead 
fueling, you know, before, give yourself enough time before you start the race and then think more about the carbohydrate as you move further into the race um, so that you allow your body to use more fat as you go and really save up your glycogen for the end. And Greg, based on everything you know, everything you've done, all the races you've run, what is your best advice for a first-time marathoner? You can do it. Oh, I always love ending on that note. Yes, because if you go to the finish line of a marathon, and I have been to a lot of them, you will see ordinary people like you and me doing extraordinary things on the day. It is inside of all of us. That's why you've done the training. So believe in yourself and stay positive and know that that awesomeness is in you. Just go out there and let it happen. Well, that is beautiful. I'm going to have that tattooed on my cheek for everyone running by at all their marathons this year. I love it. And I love the two of you. You have so much wisdom, so much good stuff. And I know that marathoners, whether they're going out for their first, their fastest, whatever their goals are, that they all took something away from this episode. So thank you for being here. And we should do this like every week because we just scratched the surface today. There's so much more to talk about, but I love everything that both of you said. And I'm just so grateful that we were able to make this happen. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for tuning in to the You Can Run a Marathon series on the Alley on the Run show. I hope you learned a lot along the way and found the strength and confidence you need before your first or next 26.2 mile race. The marathon distance is something really special and no matter your pace, your level, or your running history, I know one thing for sure, you've got this. And I wanna know all about it. I wanna hear about your training, your racing, your life. Talk to me at Alley on the Run one on Instagram and Twitter and on the Alley on the Run Facebook page. You can also do something very nice if you're up for it. Go leave a rating and review for the show on Apple Podcasts. I always appreciate that. And I'm so grateful for everyone who has taken the time to do so already. Before I let you go, let's give a big thank you to Generation You Can for making this series possible. Go to generationyoucan.com and use code ONTHERUN to get 20% off your order and free shipping. If you're trying You Can for the first time, I always recommend trying out their You Can Run Starter Pack. For that, you're going to want to go directly to generationyoucan.com slash ONTHERUN50. You'll get 50% off and free shipping on those You Can Run Starter Packs. It's a great way to try out their products and figure out what you like as race day approaches. All right, remember, you've got this. And thanks for joining me on the run.